Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm so pleased to welcome Micah Pellegrino as my guest. Micah is Senior Project Manager of Water and Wastewater at Jacobs, one of the world's leading engineering companies. Actually, the water sector might be rich in engineers of all sorts and kinds, yet engineering as a subject is often overlooked. So let's correct that and make it today's deep dive. In our discussion, Micah shares how a consulting engineer's job is a cycle which starts with the end in mind, delivering on the promise, and how leading the project to successful outcomes involves many facets, from resources to regulations through water quality or understanding the bigger picture. She'll tell us how people and communication are at the heart of a project manager's daily duties and how a project's timescale over several decades has to influence the way you run it. But there's actually much more in this week's conversation, such as how engineering is another way to play Lego, how you often have to go far beyond technical topics, how engineers have their fair retreatments but know when to be pragmatic, or how to deal with innovation when you have to reconcile so many sometimes divergent interests. We'll dive into it in a jiffy, but I have to ask you for a little hand in spreading the word right before. Please, if you do like this podcast, tell the whole world, share this episode with at least two of your friends or colleagues, and if there's anything you don't like about the show or a topic you'd like us to cover, just drop me a word, ideally on LinkedIn. Do it, share it, I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. So hi, Micah. Welcome to the show. Hi, Antoine. Thanks for having me. You're based in Toronto right now. So uh, what can you tell us about Toronto that people would dream to go there once they can? Uh, we have beaches. Oh, really? <laughs> Very good beaches. So... Even if it's a lake beach, is very good. Like you really can enjoy summers in Toronto. So you see, when I was thinking of Toronto, I would never thought of a beach. So that's really a good one. <laughs> so thanks for sharing that one. Actually, watch me have a terrific accent for my first question. When I was checking your path on LinkedIn, I saw that you studied, and I have to read my notes for that, Ingenieria Ambiental, which... I would roughly translate as environmental engineering. Is that right? Yeah. So I actually started like in Brazil, I started as engineering. You don't start on a specific engineering. I started as engineering and then I moved to chemical engineering. And at the end of chemical engineering, you can choose more like fields you want to um, follow. So I followed environmental at that point. I was focused between thinking about food industry and environmental, but I guess like my heart was stronger than my stomach at that point. <laughs> so I end up in environmental and I always like it like uh, outdoors, outside animals and everything. So. so that was the environmental element, but how did you move to water inside this environmental bigger topic? Yeah, but I was working in an environmental. I was already working with water somehow. I was working at first with groundwater remediation, which is basically treatment of groundwater to kind of be injected back in the soil. And then I was working with water resources, but was basically working with the um, water and wastewater plants and where to install and what's the level of treatment required to not affect the water resources. So I was already uh, working with the water and water treatment in, in a certain way, but just as environmental engineering, that was not paying the bills. So I kind of need to go for something that, like, anyway, I was like a, a recent graduated 
engineer, so environmental was not paying the bills. It was like super overlooked in Brazil. So at that point, I had the opportunity to join Degramon, which is Suez nowadays, on the water and wastewater industry, like pure water and wastewater treatment. But it was still connected somehow. Like there was like a, a lot of knowledge that I got gained on my first years that I could apply at Suez at the time. And it just kept going. And so your career inside Suez brought you to Canada where you, you stayed. So, yeah. So actually we pushed, like me and my husband, we wanted to move out of Brazil just to experiencing something different. And it was good that Suez allowed me that opportunity to continue in the same company and doing the same thing. At the time we moved to Montreal, we thought we would just spend a few years and go back to Brazil. But 13, 14 years after, here still am I. And I don't think we are coming back soon. But anyway, kind of Canada grow in my heart. So what's interesting here to me is you mentioned that at the time you were working for Degremont, which is an EPC company, basically, if you want to make it simple. And now you're working for Jacobs. What's your role at Jacobs? And how did you switch from EPC to really engineering? Yeah. So when I started at Degramon in Brazil, it was a it is an EPC company. So I was involved on the entire treatment process, I would say, like from raw water to distribution and either as application engineer choosing like every single step and designing every single step or as execution engineer as well, like kind of participating on the procurement and going to site, overseeing the construction, commissioning the plant. Like my first two weeks at Suez was commissioning a wastewater treatment plant. So at, in Brazil, I was on the EPC chain. So I was seeing like the whole, the way business was done is different. When I moved to Montreal, to Suez in Montreal, here the municipalities are little small. The way business are done is different. Like the EPC does not have much room here. Like they do not have much space here. So we were basically just delivering one equipment in a treatment chain design by a consultant engineering. So after a few years, my first few years here, it was actually good because it allowed me to see different process in, it was small projects, different process in a number of process. So like the number, like as IPC in Brazil, I got participated maybe to 10 projects in Montreal. I got participated in 30, 40 projects. So because they were small, like then you get more number of projects. But I was missing to be part of this full chain on the decision make on the pure design before the decision make, like when you do the decision making. So I moved at that time to another consultant company in, in Montreal because I want to go back to the designing and not just focusing on one process, but like focusing in the entire plant. Now, as in Jacobs, I'm a senior project manager. Design is still my love, like it's still what I like to do. But I think in the water industry, you cannot just be a pure project manager. You need a very broad technical background. And I still have the chance to actually do some technical or even coach people in doing the technical. So it's not just pure project management. It's a technical project management at the end that allows you to be part of the design and you sign off in every single deliverable to your client. So you kind of need that technical knowledge and you participate on the technical side. Actually, you raise a, a very good point with this elements that the EPC job is not really the same in Brazil than what it might be in, in Canada. And it's certainly not the same than what it, what it is in Switzerland or in Denmark or wherever in the world. And I like, you know, to sketch the water industry as a pyramid. You have the, um, the end user on the top of that pyramid. He's owning the plant. Then you have the consultant engineer. So the place where you are today, which is basically the one telling the end user how he can solve his problem. Then the EPC has a bit of the process knowledge, but is rather there to put all the equipment together. Then you have the OEMs beneath the uh, EPC that will be doing this single part. And then at the very bottom, you have the suppliers, so the place where... I am, for instance, today. 
I'm sometimes wondering, you know, OEMs want also to go a bit into the EPC world. The EPC wants to do everything and say they can be a one-stop shopping for the end user. And consultants, if you go to the website of Jacobs, for instance, it seems like Jacobs can also do everything. So it sounds to me like the borders between all these words are kind of fading. Is it something which is fully wrong or what's your opinion there? You are not wrong and it really depends on where you are in the world and like what's happening. But even if you take Suez, for example, they can be a IPC, they can play a role as OEM, they can play a role as end users because they do operate some plants. So yeah, there is no distinctive line and I think that's part of the beauty of the industry. So to focus back on, on what you do today, you're working in a consultant engineering company. Where would you say that your job starts on a project? When do you get first involved and who's your interlocutor? Um, so where my, where my job starts in the project? Yep. It's a cycle as well, right? So where, okay. um, if you take a specific project where my job starts is actually delivering a good project to a client that we recognize your like competence and then he wants you to be in another project coming so you would be involved like in kind of like making your client happy at a current project and then for the upcoming project we would be involved in if the client needs to help out them to tailor their request for a proposal if he has questions or anything like this. And then once the request for a proposal is out, I would participate on the proposal itself. And then if you win, and then you start executing the project, but you still kind of have to do a good execution. Otherwise, you don't get a, the next chance. So that's why it's like a cycle. So I'm glad to be part of the entire cycle, like from execution to proposal. And when we were talking about execution, you have the sometimes you have the planning stage and then you have the design stage or and the construction stage. So I'm also I also participate in all of these stages uh, for different projects in different time. So it really does give you like the entire cycle. Actually, the, the reason why I'm asking you that is because I, I was cooking a provocative question. Don't take me wrong here. I, I don't want to put you uh, in a bad position, but you, you might be seeing behind me, I have this water treatment handbook from Degremont. And let's say I'm an end user. I take that book. Okay. It's uh, 1,500 pages. I have to digest that. It's not very easy, but there's also a summary. So I could go directly to my problem and, and see the issues. Why do I need a consultant engineer to help me out? I mean, come on, it's water. It's easy to treat, isn't it? It's it is if you know what's happening first, but and every single project or every single concern or issue or challenge is very specific, right? Like it's not about just taking the book and reading. It depends on you are the end user, you have some sort of knowledge, but first, do you have the workload to do it? Second, do you have all the disciplines inside that municipality to complete the entire project? And other things you have to keep in mind is, do you know, have all the knowledge about the regulation, about the environmental that's going on? Like every single water quality is different. Like, for example, when I was in Brazil, our biggest issue was not biggest, but one of the like, turbidity was around, around 700 NGU. In Canada, turbidity is 0.5 NGU. So there is so much variation in Quantity, water quality, the challenge of the environment, even how much money you have for the project, who is your end user, not the operator, but and the, like the community, like what the community wants, what the community is able to pay for. So you kind of have to get all of this in the table and and make it the best you can for that, pro like find the best solution for that project. It's the memento will help you, but it's just a tool. I said it. I mean, it's a provocative question. So sorry, I, but, but I fully, fully subscribe to your point. Actually, if I get you right, the thing that's different on every project is the water. There's no two water which are exactly the same. So what is actually the, the first question you have to raise when you're on a new project? Is it to draw a water sample or what is it? It really depends on, like, the projects can be very broad as well. 
I have worked in projects as like bidding in projects as EPC in Brazil that you don't even have a water quality. So the first thing you go, it's get a boat, get to the middle of the river and sample and do like bench tests and pilot tests. But I think the actually the first question I would ask myself is when you get a call from a client, is like, how can I make this work? What's the approach I can take on this project that can lead us to the project objectives that they can make this a successful project. So it's more like how you're going to approach this and then you use your knowledge to develop tasks as part of this approach, but like how you're going to approach what it makes sense to approach. That's the first question I ask myself. You mentioned the various elements which can be far beyond technical aspects like how much the, the community is ready to pay for a treatment, what are the regulations and, and all that stuff. Um, that's really important inside the decision matrix, I guess. How many different customers do you manage? It's not a nice word, but let's say manage at the same time. Is it like a handful, 20, a thousand, one? It's a handful at least. So you start by the community, like for the residents who is actually going to be consuming that water. And then if you here in Ontario, for example, a lot of the municipalities are two tiers. So you have the regional who is responsible for the supply, but you have the local municipality who is responsible for distribution. So that already like adds you some stakeholders. Then you have the ministries that are different stakeholders. Inside the regional municipality or the local municipality, you have the operations, the capital team. So like one holds the money, the other one is actually going to have to deal with this after. And then you have, you are always dealing with the vendors and the contractors. Yeah, it's the number of different people and different interests that you have to deal in every single project are... More than 10 for sure. And that's where I always say that's not just like pure engineering, like it's just not the technical side. If you don't have like a soft skills to understand all of this and communicate with all of these levels, you cannot get a successful project done. So what's the most important soft skill you need to deal with a project? It's communication. It's communication. You, you got to communicate well communication is the most important thing and not just send an email like nowadays it's not just email you still kind of have to pick up the phone you still have to act like active listen what they are saying and what they are not saying you mentioned that you have to deal with the vendors and the contractors and you know I'm not cracking a secret for the people that, that were listening to previous episodes of that podcast. I used to work as well for Dugremont and Suez in the past. And um, I remember sometimes when I was visiting for the first time, like a, a large industrial who had to treat his water, he was envisioning big shelves that I would have in my head office. And on those big shelves, I would have a fully blown treatment for his water. And I would just have to pick like... Um, treatment and process number seven, number three, and number five. I pack them in a container, I send it to him, and he, he can deal with that. And um, we both know that's not true. There's, <laughs> there's engineering involved. But on the other end, there's also a certain part of truth here. I, I think every single vendor or contractor tries to have his standards. And in between, there's this fine line of how much engineering is involved on each project. How would you define that engineering? Is it fine-tuning a standard or is it more trying to build upon very single step and make it a nice plant? I mean, where would you put the cursor between those two extremes? Engineering is getting all these packages that are on your shelf and it's like a Lego at the end. Like you have the Legos, but you can build anything you want with that like any single person who built a lego is going to look at different at the end the engineering part of it it's to get the lego pieces and build what your client want what the community needs that's where the engineering or the consultant engineering enters like in are able to do it able to help the client to get to 
the final project. Let's dig a bit into this one. You mentioned build what the client wants, but let's say the client is a fan of membranes and uh, you think the right treatment is something which doesn't involve membranes. Do you try to fit in your process what the client loves and wants or do you convince him that he's wrong? I think you have to know when to let it go. Like you, you have to show the technical aspects, the advantages of one technology and the other technology. But at one point, if he is only comfortable in operating and maintaining membranes at the end, you cannot push for something that he's not comfortable with because he's the one who's going to be dealing with this in the next 20, 25 years. So he has to buy in. Like he doesn't matter what you are offering, they have to buy in and they have to take ownership of this later. So it has to be an open conversation. You can show, the consultant can show the benefits of every single one. And sometimes maybe what they want to they don't have the budget to pay for it like so it's always like a, in in every single aspect there is a compromise i think in both sides and that's what it's and it always comes back to me and when i say client i'm not necessarily just talking about the municipality the final client is the residents right like so the whole idea is to give them to improve their water quality and to make sure they have a reliable water coming to their uh, house. So does that mean that you try to build one process or do you pre-build in parallel maybe two, three options and then by discussing with them you refine and you choose one out of the three? There's a lot of ways that can be done. So usually you start a process when you don't have anything defined, you would start for like a feasibility study that you would consider different process and look at the cost benefit of every single one of them and in way with your client what would be the best option there are some for example in Ontario there are some regulation that allow on your planning when you are planning for a new project or you are planning to add uh, treatment or if you're planning for expanding a plant or they do require you to follow a planning process which is called municipal class environmental assessment that you have to take all of this in consideration and not just what Again, it's not what the client necessarily what the client wants, but what would be the best for the environment and environment accounts, social, economical, natural, vegetation, animals, the community itself. Like if the construction would disrupt the community for a long time, maybe it's not the way to go. So all of this aspect is taken in consideration in every single project. So when we say what client needs, it's a little, it's not like what a single person needs. It's what, it's more broad. And yet in the water industry, that's the beauty of the, of the water treatment as well, is that you can have several ways to treat the water. There's not one that works and all the other that don't. There are advantages and drawbacks for each of them. So, you know, if I'm, Walking, for instance, in Switzerland and I visit some plants, I bet you I can recognize who was the consultant on each of the plants because you can notice that there is kind of a favorite way to do things, which is slightly different from one company to another, which leads me to that question. Do you personally have a favorite treatment? Do you think Jacobs has a favorite treatment or are you fully agnostic? I think in general, people are not agnostic. And I cannot say Jacobs has a favorite. I think it depends on which engineering at Jacobs you are talking with. I, of course, have my favorite ones. Like, I'm a little bit averse of chemicals. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, if you can treat without, why you would add chemicals, right? Like, if you have solutions that take less, like, why you would add chemicals to a water that is already good, especially in Canada, like, in Brazil, you could not, like, you need them, but in Canada, it's, the water is, if they are so lucky, um, the water is already good, so why would you add more stuff to it? But doesn't necessarily mean that I'm gonna be able to work only in this type of project here, so... So you try to avoid chemicals as soon as possible. I, I get that. It makes about sense to me. But let's say I try to make up a, a fictive example. Let's say 
I'm a vendor of a forward uh, ultra filtration. I mean, really try to making something up which doesn't exist, which is difficult. But no, let's take a, a real example. Let's say I'm a supplier of ultra filtration skids. And I happen to have a good relationship with you just because in the early stage of a project, you know that I would support you. I would make calculations for you. I would not ask you what's the project, who's the client. I would just help you. Would that influence you or would you just keep saying, you know, you're just another supplier? I don't try to trick you, sorry, but I'm just No, curious. I know. It's, I think the relationship is important, but I don't think the decision would be made just because of it. Like you still have a professional responsibility to offer or discuss with your, or present it to your client the best options. And what's the level of granularity up to which you would go? You know, I, I mentioned that pyramid and uh, you are quite at the top of the food chain, if I might say so. If now a, a supplier of valves or pumps come to you and say, hey, I think I can help you because, you know, if you replace that valve by that valve, it's going to be much better. Is it something you would really consider or you you have all these other stages of the pyramid in between so that you don't have to deal with every single little detail of the plant i already had to deal with every single detail of the plant like up to the what's the material of this nut you're gonna put but nowadays i'm less involved with the little detail but i think it's important i think if the supplier or the oem has something interesting that can make that project better why not listen to them but then you just have to be cognizant that you have to weigh these options and weigh the options and see if it's really would improve the project. You're opening a very interesting door here. If I come to you and present you a brand new process and I have many lab studies that shows it's wonderful, it's nice, it's uh, 30% better than whatever exists, but I don't have a full-scale reference what would be your position? What do you think is the right position as a consultant? Where do you put, again, the cursor between the risk? Because, of course, I never built it full scale. So I might be just making up my numbers. But on the same hand, it looks interesting. It looks promising. So how do you deal with that? First, I would tell you to go see the municipal clients as well, not just the consultant, because they have to buy, like we, said, we were discussing, they have to buy in in a new technology. They are the one financing it and they are going to be there with this. So they have to have the courage to bet in a new technology, in an innovative technology. And if the vendor, if the supplier or the vendor could, he has to work like all the ends, not just the consultant, because the consultant alone, he would never have enough for, like her, the voice not going to be strong enough to get this going by itself but it's a long way like from what i have seen most in canada the clients are very conservative and they are not open to pilot scale results in a full scale project and not even that they are not even open to test full scale results from a different region or country in a full scale plant in their province or their country. So even like the making something that it's very like established in Europe and bring it to North America, or if it's established in States and bring it to Canada or that it's not, things are done completely different and they wanted to know if their neighbor has done it and if it has worked. Where would you set the limit? If I come with a process from the UK and I go to Canada, it might be difficult to get accepted. If I come with something from the US and I come to Canada, is it any better? Or does it really have to be from Ontario so that Ontario accepts it? For sure, like US to Canada is already easier. And then you enter in like regulatory of every single province, for example, Quebec has their own approval of technologies. So it's not about offering, it's about getting the Ministry of Environment to get that technology approved. So we, if it's not approved by the ministry, you cannot install, right? Like 
first i think there is more but there is more harmony like when it comes to like north america than like the rest of the world but i also because there is uh like organizations as awwa uf i like the knowledge the sharing knowledge and the producing knowledge in between canada and us are large like like we work with the same organizations now if i appeal to, to your personal experience what is the most risk-taking or innovative process that you had to deal with and how did you get that working through all the steps of conservatism that the water market might have the most innovative one I guess I haven't seen this project to the end, but I think the most innovative one was the um, ozone system for Montreal wastewater treatment plant, which is huge, is still in execution. And I was application engineer at for the Grand Suez at the time, and we were trying to use the um, existing shaft, outfall shaft, to mix the ozone with the wastewater. So we were talking about one meter and a half ejector inside a 20 meter diameter shaft. So like how to build this, how to make it work. So that was really thinking outside of the box, but something that it's not innovative, but I think it's actually old technology that I think it's overlooked by most of the clients is actually any biological treatment, like whether it's for groundwater or surface water, if you add a biological treatment filtration in your treatment line, that does give you more stable water in the distribution system. But since you have less control of what's going on, I think usually I, we get a lot of pushback from the municipalities just because it's unknown, right? Like... You know it works, but you don't have control over it. So it's difficult to trust nature and to say uh, those little biological things are going to eat out the pollutants. And that's the actually the beauty thing, the beauty of it. Like you are using bacteria to do the job for you. It's way more like energy is way less chemical consumption is way less your end water quality is way more stable and why not but just because it's less i feel that because it's less understood it's less controllable it's usually not considered is it really less controllable because you you could say that today with um, the new ways to measure everything activity bod cod uh, so many parameters it might be easier to control than it was maybe 30 years ago it is easier to control than 30 years ago and it's there uh, even and how to like right now you can have like atp count on the plant, like before you, you, you don't even had a, a, like a, a range of ATP that would be considered like something like you didn't know what would be the ATP to say if it's the uh, process is working or not. And now you have like guidelines on this and you can do the ATP count on your own lab. So it is better to control. Um, but everything is less controllable because it can be more unpredictable. Like something can get upset. And then you have, you need to recover and it's doable. But from my experience, it doesn't get that upset. Like it's kind of rare, but people, they have that fear that like, what if it gets upset? What were I going to do? Like, Would you think that might be linked with uh, some, let's not use the big names, but lost knowledge, you know, in that in the very first episode of that podcast, I was interviewing Laurent de Franceschi, and he was referring to one of the guys that uh, taught him uh, wastewater treatment. And uh, the guy was watching the sludge basins and would tell you, mm, the sludge index is at 17. And then you could do a chemical analysis and that would be true. When nowadays, maybe those guys really passionate about that job are retired for two decades now. And maybe there's a bit less sexiness and attractiveness to this industry, which means that not all profiles are attracted to uh, operating 
uh, dirty and smelling wastewater treatment plant. Do you think that plays a role or is it really? I do think it plays a role. I do think it plays a role. Like if you, when you get operated a biological treatment and understand it and like you just have a feeling what it's going to happen and but anyway the world is changing somehow so like people don't give that time to understand the deep of the thing or to spend time like everything is so fast nowadays that like even myself and sometimes I fear for the young engineers that everything it's for tomorrow so you don't have even time to assimilate that knowledge that you acquire today you know when i was in engineering school i was told that as an engineer you have to be able to take you know a, a small piece of paper and do your calculation in front of your customer and that has to be roughly accurate but i was told that but i never used it in fact because everything nowadays can be automated made by a smartphone made by a computer Do you think it's still important to know these these roots of engineering or is it just uh, like saying uh, you want faster horses when in fact you want a car? I think it's still important because it gives you the sensibility of the numbers. Like if you cannot do by hand or if you cannot, if you don't understand the units or if you cannot do by hand or if you cannot do yourself or like kind of have the principle in your mind, you don't have sensibility of the numbers. And then how you know that if that whatever the software or tool or Excel gives you makes sense or not. When you do it by hand, it gives you some sort of like scale. Like, does it make sense? Some months ago, um, I had a Transcend on, on that same microphone and uh, Transcend has a, a strong take at our industry. They offer a software which claims to automate the first 30% of the engineering. So of course, when it comes to advanced engineering, there's still a human who has to understand and get all those those things sorted. But their belief is that the, the first 30% of rough engineering first steps can be automated. And actually, they don't even believe it. They also do it. First, what's your feeling on that? Do you think that the early stages can be automated? And if yes, up to which point can we automate things? I think anything can be automated and if it can be automated is because it's pure logical. I think the part that exists you there before you automated or even to read the results after of the automation and that's engineering, like how like to be automated you need to feed with data and that data that you got from your field trip that you got from talking with the client that you got out of for like water quality analysis anything like how you feed and what of the range you are going to use that cannot be automated and how you like make that project specific for uh, that location and for that particularities that cannot be automated and after if it's it's just helping you building a model or making like hundreds of interactions to optimize that. Yes, let's use this too. But if you don't give good input and if you don't understand the output, then not automation is worthless. So shit in, shit out. That's the, the usual shit saying. Shit in, shit out. And of course, if you don't understand, you, you cannot see if it's shit and you just have to trust what your your program is, is giving you. Yeah. You mentioned uh, earlier a white elephant in this industry with the Montreal project, which lasted, I would say, over a decade or roughly a decade. Is it an exception or do you have also uh, in your daily portfolio of projects you're dealing with, some of them which are really lasting for years? No, yes, there are some projects that has been executed within the schedule. I have been through a lot of projects like that like that they are not always complicated or like super political yeah there is there is still uh, projects going on like of course you can never know like once sometimes you break ground you never know what's gonna find and something can delay construction or whatever it is or regulation i have been to projects that regulation changes in the middle so you have to restart Things can happen, but 
I think we are getting better and better and better in actually executing them within the forecasted schedule. But what would be the average schedule of, of a project? Let's say a wastewater project, for instance. A wastewater project. So I would say like 20 years. And why I'm saying this? Because if you just, everything starts at the master plan level, like how this community is going to grow, when I'm going to need this wastewater plant, how much water they will be consuming. And then if you don't identify from 10 years from now that you need expansion and then you don't start putting the budget to actually construct that 10 years from now, you're not going to have a project. So two years of construction, it's nothing when you look at the 20 years, like the municipalities, the clients, they do start looking at this 20, 25 years before they actually need to invest on that. And and actually, if they don't, then that's when they start in, uh, doing projects that is just putting silver tape here and there. And it's not the best outcome. Like you kind of need, you need a good planning phase and then to think how you are going to actually like do the procurement. It's going to be a conventional procurement. You're going to go to like an EPC or like PPP and like all of this is start way before then the actual project. And so the timeline of a project, it's very large. That means that as a consultant engineer, you really are in a, in a long-term relationship with the municipality. You are in a very long-term relationship. But that's when things go right. But does that happen also to see some divorce? There is a lot of divorces. I have seen divorces. I have seen marriages. And if you want to keep married... It's like uh, any sort of term. You have to do your best. You have to listen to your client. You have to to be reasonable and know how to communicate with them. How do you deal with the children if you divorce? Because basically all the plans, uh, you are an, an external brain. It's hard to continue to work if you, you don't have a brain. <laughs> yeah, you find a way. There's always a way. You bring different brains. There's always a way. Okay, that's a, I had never thought of that, but you know, uh, the, this 20 years timeline that you mentioned, it's a huge commitment between a municipality and their consultant, and uh, it builds it on a lot of trust. And The municipality not necessarily needs to carry the same consultant in over this all these years, and sometimes there are some consultants that just do the planning phase, there are some consultants that are more focused on, on, on the detailed design construction, but if every single one of them do a good job, then it's easier to pass the stick between one to the other. I have seen, like, if things are not documented well from the previous consultant, sometimes you kind of have to start from scratch or, like, kind of rework somehow because you kind of have to make sure that if it's not documented, you cannot know if it's the good, the best way to do it. And since you have a responsibility to know how it's going forward, you have to double check. So that happens. I have to be cautious of your time as well. So sorry, I'm always the one who asks too many questions, but I, I still have two in, in this deep dive that would like to raise to you. The first is, what is the thing you've learned the hard way in your job as consultant engineer? I would say it's that the political behind the project like there are things usually water and wastewater upgrades in municipal treatment plants don't bring votes right like the residents don't know what's happening the community doesn't know what's happening so the budget is very limited so i think the challenge it is like how you justify that budget and like how you make the high management and the municipality understanding that that is required and how you get their attention that it deserves. And at the same time, be cognizant that like whatever project you are working on, it's taxpayers' money, right? Like, so you have like a professional commitment to do your best and like use your best judgment. So I think that, I think that would be the hardest thing in as a consultant engineer. Very interesting one. I have a last question, which is actually not a question because I promised myself to stop asking that question. So I'm not asking the question. I leave it up to you. But we have an 85-15 gender quote in the water industry between men and women. And um, I'm just wondering, um, 
as I said, I'm not asking the question because um, I find it quite unfair for every woman I have on that microphone to have to have a strong opinion on that. So I don't want to push it more than it should. But do you have a strong opinion that you, you'd like to share here? Or shall we just say that we are two water professionals and uh, our gender has nothing to do with the discussion? I would like to say that gender has nothing to do with discussion, but I still see a lot of business being done because people are more comfortable doing business between the same gender. They find a way to have an easier conversation, an easier talk, easier communication. So it's still, I still that don't think a woman has equal opportunities. But as a woman, I think that the gender discussion has to keep going in general, not just on the water industry. Like we still don't have the same opportunities. And for the water industry, I wouldn't expect a 50 feet percent ratio just because I think sometimes don't interest women as much as men, like the construction part of it or the, but the important is just to have equal opportunities. And um, do you think you have those equal opportunities today in Canada, for instance, which I would imagine as a forward-looking country? I would say Canada is... I I think it's different from Brazil, but I'd not necessarily say it better, for example, from my experience in both countries. I have worked some in U.S. as well. They all have, at one part of the chain, one of them have different concepts or like different inequalities. Some, I think here as in the office, you probably have the equal opportunities, but maybe not on the field or like, I don't know how actually, but like I was, when I was on the field in Brazil, I was actually find that I had the same opportunity but not necessarily in the office. Okay, so the other way around. So I think it depends on where you are and where the country you are. There is still room for improvements for sure. Again, I don't expect 50% ratio just because women have like different preferences in life, but just that don't make that a no. All clear? <laughs> if it's good with you, I propose you to switch to uh, the rapid fire questions. Sure. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I try to keep my question short and uh, you can, of course, be long in the answer, but the aim is to be as short as possible. My first question would be, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Um... The most exciting project I'm working on right now, it's called Groundwater Treatment Strategy for the region of York in Ontario, where Yorking is investing to improve the water quality for the residents that it's most groundwater quality, uh, groundwater water uh, with lots of iron manganese. And um, we are finally moving to treatment removal of this iron manganese, which would improve the water quality for the residents, like in a way that it's unprecedented, not, not like it's what they deserve at the end. Like nobody deserves to open a tap and have like a orange water. That's a good one <laughs> for sure. Uh, <laughs> what's your favorite part of your current job? My favorite part is brainstorm concept designs. How much of your job, uh, what percentage would, would it be that you, you do those brainstormings? With the design team. like So right now for this groundwater treatment strategy, we are brainstorming concept designs with the civil engineer, with the structural engineering, with the CAD person. Like We just sit down and see how can we lay this out? How can we make it work? What's the best way? What are the options where we can uh, put the new treatment? Uh, what's the best way to connect with the existing that zone site? And so all this brainstorming and discussion with the other engineers and technicians on the project just I think it feeds my mind like I can see how that can be a uh, mind fooling <laughs> uh, what is the trend to watch out in the water industry I think it's something I want to be watch out but it's like climate change okay uh, because 
it will hit us. It's already hitting us, but I don't think it's it's poking enough yet. So that's what I would like to be the trend. What can we do better in the water industry regarding climate change? There's two ways of looking at one thing is having a design more sustainable to contribute with that like in the long term, but also considering that the storms are going to hit us more often, like that anything can happen. So you can, when you're doing the design, you do have to take more in mitigation aspects and not just, ah, like it was here for 20 years, never happened anything. Now it's going to start happening. Like, Um, so you have to, to consider mitigation in every single project. And I would really would like to see more sustainable designs coming up for the long term. But I don't think there's a financial issue with this and like how usually, usually this is more sustainable designs lose on your cost benefit. Then I just question myself is the aspects or the criteria used on the cost benefits that has to be revised to take that in consideration. Usually we are in a strongly regulation-driven industry. So um, if regulation is not helping, it's difficult to come up with uh, the good pupil that wants to do better than the others. Yeah, and and it's not the consultant or the local municipality that's going to do this. It kind of has to be pushed from the government. So regulation, and anyway, I hope that's... But we have to watch out for in the industry. <laughs> do you have sources to recommend to uh, keep up with the latest trends? I do like to, like, besides the North American um, sources, there's like AWA, WEF, AWA, uh, WARF. I'm always reading an online magazine that's called Water Waste Water Treatment Online from UK because I think Europe in general, they are way more advanced on more sustainable construction or more like resilient construction or even like more like emerging contaminants. So I do like to read a lot of European magazines or like references. And last question, would you have someone to recommend me to invite on that same microphone? Yes, I would recommend someone that it's completely different maybe from whoever you have ever interviewed. I would recommend Eleanor Allen, which is the CEO of Water for People. She's actually a previous Jacobs alumni, but today she's dedicated to Water for People. And I think it would be a really interesting interview. And then she could bring an idea of the water industry in this country's in development and how it's water and uh, sanitation for them. Well, that sounds really interesting. So I'm, I'm going to make sure to, to reach out to her as soon as possible. If people want to follow up with you, where can they find you? Online, offline, if you want them to find you. Yeah, I would say LinkedIn. I'm not a very good social media person. Like I do not post, like I barely have the normal social media and I don't look so often, but uh, the best way to reach me would be through LinkedIn. Well, Mike, it was a pleasure to share this hour with you. I've learned many things on your, your consultant engineering world and a bit beyond. So thanks for sharing. And uh, thanks for inviting me. I hope to have the opportunity to uh, talk about your long-term relationships with those uh, municipalities in a in a future <laughs> <laughs> let's see where we are how, how i'm headed on the marriage or divorce <laughs> hopefully on the good side but hopefully on the know. good side yeah thanks a lot okay thanks bye bye thanks for listening to don't waste water this podcast was brought to you by gf piping systems Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.